Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with Kansas City-born, California-based jazz drummer John Armato. We had a wide-ranging talk about a great many things, like his 2021 debut CD, The Drummer Loves Ballads. It's a wonderful listen, done with a veteran all-star collection of KC jazz musicians. It all started in Kansas City, and he was an early member of Kerry Strayer's groups and the Kansas City Boulevard Big Band. And on occasion, he was a sideman for the jazz and tap duo, the McFadden Brothers. He moved to New York City in 2004. It was a great experience, but he eventually made his way to Sacramento, California, his home now. He's got great tales, adventures, stories, and wisdom. Enjoy. Hey, John, Joe Domino, Neon Jazz Radio in Kansas City. Hey, Joe, nice to hear from you. Nice to talk to you. How you doing, man? Doing well. Doing well. Yeah. Excited to chat and appreciate the opportunity to talk about the, the project. Yeah. Hey, thank you for taking time out. Thanks for sending over the music. I had a great time listening to it. It was funny because oh, good. as I was listening to it, I was going down 71 towards the city and just the skyline opened up and you were talking about, you know, vignettes of Kansas City and, oh, and uh, yeah. You know, your first gig and all, you know, the jam sessions and all that. So it was very cool, for sure. Oh, that's that's a great story. I'm glad to hear that. It provided the right texture for what was going on at the time. So the first thing that we should do is get into your debut CD, The Drummer Loves Ballads. And I love that ballad story. Um, cool. So talk to me a little bit about this long, long journey into an album that's coming out during a pandemic, but I guess the good part of this is, is that live music is starting to open up. Talk to me about that general feeling of this coming out right now. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting place to start. You know, the album really started with a story of rejection. You know, that, that jam session where I said, let's do a ballad, and that wasn't well received. But it became an album of reflection in the natural course of developing it. That's a part of what I think makes it a unique album in general, and also a part of the what I call the full album listening experience, because those reflections kind of tell a story, whether it's the interludes or the, the music itself. And I think that's what makes it uh, familiar, because the, the ballads are certainly a lot of them tunes that people know, but I think it also feels fresh because of the way we approached it. But, um, yeah, I mean, to, to your specific question about uh, this moment in time, I do think it ended up being sort of music for our moment. I've had people say... This is just what we need to listen to these days, uh, that sort of thing. There was originally a plan to include two tributes. So there's a tribute to Steve Paskey and one to Kerry Strayer, and those are names that jazz fans in Kansas City might recognize. Steve was a wonderful woodwind player, mostly clarinet. We had Lynn Zimmer come in and play Memories of You as a tribute to Steve Paskey. And then Kerry Strayer was a wonderful baritone sax player that I worked with for many years, and we brought in Brett Jackson to play Nightlights as a tribute to Kerry. And that's kind of what it was intended to do at the, at the beginning. But then on the way, I lost both my parents uh, during the recording of the project, uh, my mom to an aneurysm and my dad to COVID, and uh, within an eight-month time period. And then uh, after we had done all the production, but before we released, unfortunately, we lost Molly Hammer, a vocalist on the album to, get to uh, cancer, and Jeff Lizenby, who played um, accordion on Shadows of Paris, uh, to COVID. And just the entire vibe became this act of gratitude and appreciation and reflection on those folks. Man, what an answer. You know, of all the times that I asked this in relationship to COVID, 
this probably hits home the most. I mean, you really, this, this is a tapestry of that time. Such a clean recording. It's such a powerful, I don't even, I don't even know if clean's the word for it, but it just feels like there was such a level of astute attention to detail going mm. all the way throughout this. And, it, and, and, and I think the thing that struck me about this album too is that it tells a story, you know, I mean, Jazz is mostly something that's void of vocals, but I think it's interesting that, you know, there was a story that went through this. So ultimately, what do you want the listener to get from this very powerful debut into the world of jazz for you? Well, let me, let me answer what I, I hear two questions there. I mean, I'd, I'd love to comment on sort of the, the clean recording and attention to detail, and then I'll, I'll comment on the takeaway. I'm a newbie to this kind of recording. I've done sessions but never been a part of really driving my own project. And so this is where all this gratitude overflows. You know, I have a good friend, John Kishan, who's a, a world-class drummer and been a buddy of mine for decades. And I asked him to produce, and we, we argue whether or not he really was a producer, but he, he, he was my guru, my Sherpa, whatever you want to call it. John knows how to make albums and has worked with producers all across the world and, and uh, great recording artists and engineers. So he had a ton to do with the, the sort of sonic quality and the care and attention and decisions made to the recording. Justin Wilson was the primary engineer, and Justin is a part of a lineage of, of engineers that, that um, really sort of followed the ancestry of Ron Ubel, who had Soundtrack uh, Studios in Kansas City, which, of course, was the jazz studio in Kansas City for so long. Justin has the ears and had the physical space that was really right for a jazz recording that had sort of um, a, a classic authentic sound, but with all the modern uh, abilities to, to shape it. Howie Lindemann uh, was the mix engineer. And he's a six-time Grammy Award winner who's worked with Roberta Flack and Natalie Cole and incredible musicians. Greg Calvi was the mastering engineer, another multi-Grammy Award winning engineer of, who's really legendary. So I just fell into the hands of some of the world's most talented people to ensure the sonic character of the album. And then, you know, for my part, I had a pretty specific vision of what I wanted, and we weren't in a hurry. So we were able to take our time, do multiple sessions, and make the album we wanted to make. And, I'm, and I love it that you can hear that. So I'm just really gratified at the question itself. In terms of what I want people to take away from it, you know, I have a what might be a, a controversial point of view on the creative process on this sort of thing. I made the album for me. Uh, you know, there's there's old advice for writers, which is, you know, write the book that you would want to read. I wanted to create the album that was uh, the album I wanted to hear. You know, the, in my own collection, I wish I could pull this sort of thing out and put it on and listen to it. So it was sort of a selfish creative act, but then it becomes uh, a process of how do you share that as unselfishly as possible and, and hope that it's relevant to other people. So I just was looking for myself for uh, an hour of music that would let me reflect, relax, find beauty, and think about what's important and just enjoy myself. Uh, and that would reward me for listening casually as well as for listening closely. And if others take away that same experience, then I'd be hugely happy. You know, there's always that gateway drug, that flashpoint that that happens for people that love jazz. So talk to me about your beginnings, your childhood, and how 
this whole mm. jazz experience became your world. Yeah, it's, it's funny you talk about that because I was literally thinking about that this morning. I, I owe it to two things. I explain it through two things, I suppose. One is what my dad used to call the X factor, that just unknown part of your DNA that you can't really explain, but it's just there. And, you can you know, we all see in little kids some impetus that turns out driving their entire life. For whatever reason, jazz just plucked my string as a kid. You know, it just resonated internally. I have no idea why. I can't explain it. I don't really try to. But it's just what I responded to. And then secondly, my, my folks had great taste. My dad had no musical abilities, but was a great musical appreciator. Uh, my mom had a great singing voice and had played in her high school band and that sort of thing, um, but was not an active musician. She played a little piano. But they had great albums in the house. We had this big old um, you know, 1960s Magnavox console with the turntable and the radio and the place to store the albums. And inside there were, it was Nat King Cole and June Christie and Dave Brubeck. And I must have listened to Dave Brubeck, um, Jazz Goes to College, which was pre-famous quartet. This was when it was Joe Dodge on drums and not Joe Morello uh, and those folks. And it was this live recording. I have listened to that album probably thousands of times in my life, starting when I was a little kid. And I just, that's what I knew, that's what I loved, and that's what resonated. And I was the oddball kid in junior high whose friends were listening to ACDC. I was listening to Johnny Hartman or something like that. It just, it was just always there. And beyond that, I don't have any explanation why. So talk to me a little bit about your Kansas City roots. Just your roots and, and how that swayed you into not only your sound, but kind of your cognition of how you you approach jazz that's great um so born and raised kansas city uh, I'm, I'm 57 so i was born in 64 grew up north of the river in the gladstone area solid middle class family dad was a teacher and then a junior high school counselor mom was a stay-at-home mom and and then um uh, worked as a bookkeeper for a local furniture store i'm the youngest of five kids went to public schools winnetonka high school and I had uh, always had this love of music and was fortunate that uh, we had a pretty good public school system, you know, North Kansas City Public Schools at that time, solid district with a good music education program. So I always had good music teachers from, you know, uh, from first grade on up, uh, including Charlie Mangini, who was a well-known band director at Winnetonka High School and created outstanding experiences for his students. So I was surrounded by music in, at home. Uh, I had a great uh, public school music experience. Didn't really know the, the, the world of Kansas City until I got older because, you know, when you're growing up as a school kid north of the river, you don't automatically get south of the river much. But uh, went to one year at Mizzou for my freshman year of college and then decided to come back uh, and go to UMKC and went to the conservatory. Really got to know the city more broadly, started gigging with people like Carrie Strayer, and the, I think the influence that is stunning for me to reflect on now is the, the realization that there really is a Kansas City sound. And I think, you know, at the time, Kansas City likes to talk about Charlie Parker and Count Basie and being a, a birth, one of the birthplaces of jazz or that sort of thing. I always kind of thought, well, you know, that's Visitor and Convention Bureau kind of promo talk, but... I don't know, it just sounds like we're playing music to me. But then I moved to New York, and then I moved to Sacramento, and I've had more exposure around the country. 
And I'll be dang. I mean, there really is a Kansas City sound. There's that four on the floor, steady swing, and it's a pretty hard swinging sound. And I didn't really appreciate that, but I'm so grateful for it because it informed my sound. I think I swing pretty well, and people hear it in my playing. And even in the ballads, there's a, there's a swing and groove to, to most of them, I think. And I owe that to the people that helped, you know, helped me as I was coming up. You know, the, the other thing I'll say about Kansas City is it was a friendly musician town. I was mainly coming up in the 80s. You know, I, I played for about 20 years in Kansas City before I left town. I got to work with all the contractors, you know, the society band, Steve Miller and uh, Vince Bellardo and, and those folks, and um, worked three years with Don Warner. And I, I'm a sideman. I just played whenever the phone rang. Uh, there were just so many great people who were willing to just tell you the stories and give you advice. And, uh, I, I, you know, Kansas City was a wonderful place for me growing up, and it, and it definitely influenced the way I sound. What did you like the best about Kansas City now that you look back and you've had it? a chance to kind of compare geographies and, and, and all of that. What did you like the best about Kansas City? You know, I think having lived in New York City, I lived in Manhattan for four years, absolutely loved it. I love being out here in California. But Kansas City, I think, is a perfect size city. I, I loved that I felt connected eventually, you know, as I grew up, to almost the entire metropolitan area. You know, there's always like, oh, I remember playing that festival over there, or I had that cool school experience over there, or I remember going on a date there, or that cool festival there. And it's just, you can feel a part of the whole town, and it's easy to get around and feel connected. And it, you know, I suppose maybe that's true for anyone's hometown, but I can't go back and look at virtually any part of the city without having a flash memory of some sort and feeling rooted to it. Now, a lot has changed. It's um, surprising to me when I go downtown and see the entertainment district, uh, power and light district, that sort of thing. I, uh, it, it's almost disorienting because I've been gone now 17 years, almost 20 years. Um, but I like the, the combination of, you know, big enough to have a fair amount going on, but small enough to feel like you kind of knew the place. That, that's, that's always lingered with me. And, and of course, you know, Midwestern people are hard to beat. It's just good folks. Yeah, I definitely felt that as I moved around the country. What was the first live jazz show that ever blew you away that made you think, man, that's something I'd like to do? Oh, you know, I saw, this is just what comes to mind. I'm not even reflecting on it, but uh, for some reason it jumps to mind. I saw Count Basie with Butch Miles on drums at uh, Crown Center. It had to have been sometime, I'm going to guess, mid-70s. I'm, uh, I'm just throwing a wild dart here. Oh, my Lord. It was the first time I'd heard a, a big band like that swing that hard live. Now, I'd heard some stuff on albums, of course, but I'm getting chills thinking about it. It just was the happiest thing I'd ever heard. I mean, the Basie band is just that, – that was always my fantasy dream band. You know, it's like if I'd had a parallel life and had gotten to play in some, you know – legendary pro band. It's like, hands down, Basie Band would have been what, what I wanted to do. And of course, Butch Miles is a force of nature, you know, and watching him play was an inspiration utterly unto itself, separate from the inspiration that came from watching the band as a whole. But I'm just, I'm, I'm just sitting here smiling even telling you about it because it just gives me chills to even remember just sitting there, not even able to sit still in my chair. That band was just so amazing. Yeah, it used to be really, really swinging back in the day. I've heard about a lot of shows oh. out in that Crown Center area. Um, yeah. You know, 
was it always music for you? Did you always know that you were going to be a professional musician, or were there other dreams? It, it was. It was definitely always music. I think, like a lot of kids, I've had a variety of interests over the years. But you know, I I took my first lesson uh, May twenty seventh, nineteen seventy two. Uh, that's a date that's as important to me as my own birthday or anything else. Um, I was eight years old, one week past my eighth birthday. I had been begging my parents for drum lessons uh, for literally years, and they couldn't find a teacher who would take somebody out of the age of eight. So they just had to keep me at bay. I just had to wait until I turned eight. And one week after my eighth birthday, I went to my first lesson. And so, you know, before that was, you know, pots and pans and toy drums and, you know, beating on furniture. And, and Lord knows where it came from. That's one of those amazing DNA things. Uh, who can explain it? I don't know. But, yeah, I always wanted to play drums. Now, what's interesting to me anyway is, I think different people are attracted to different instruments for various reasons. And, of course, drums are sort of, you know, uh, on the surface anyway, uh, boisterous and rowdy and loud and you're banging. And I'm sure there was some of that for me. But I was attracted to the totality of the music. And I remember when I first discovered Buddy Rich, probably on The Tonight Show or something like that. So it was not long after I had started to take lessons. I told my parents, I said, for, for Christmas, I, I want a Buddy Rich album. But I said, not one of him just playing a bunch of solos. I want one with him with a whole band, <laughs> which, which seems like a ridiculous thing to say now. But it was, it, I fell in love with drums, but I fell in love with drums in the context of, of music overall. That was always sort of key for me. I, I don't know how to explain it, but that was, uh, it was always there. Now, along the way, you know, I had other interests. A couple of years later, I got really into magic and sleight of hand, and I did that for a number of years. And, you know, I still sort of follow along that profession. But, but music is the thing I have done longest in my life, and it's the, the way I self-identify the most. I think of myself as a musician. I've had, you know, a, a day job career, and uh, I've had other pursuits, but music has always, always been there. So what kind of culture shock was it to leave Kansas City to go to a place like New York and, and really say, all right, I'm in, I'm in the cauldron, and, and I'm ready to go? Yeah, well, it was terrifying, uh, but exciting at the same time. So for context, uh, I was working at a um, uh, at an agency called Fleshman Hillard. So my, my career has been as a communications executive in the public relations world. And so I had a job transfer, and I had my choice of some various offices, and I chose to go to New York City just because why not? That's brass ring, and it would be an amazing experience. But I was 39. Uh, when I moved to New York, and I thought, you know, my gosh, this is what you do when you're 18, and you're like, you're scrappy, and you're taking on a new city, you know. I was set in my ways and kind of terrified about it. Within two weeks after getting there, I thought perhaps I'd been born there in another life or something. It absolutely felt like home. Absolutely yeah. loved. E even the stuff I hated about New York, I loved about New York. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. just, I absolutely loved that experience. And I went there not really expecting to play that much because the last thing New York City needs is a part-time drummer, and I was there for my day job. But I was super fortunate to make friends with Bob Kindred and Ann Phillips right off the bat, literally the first week I was there I met him. And Bob uh, is ha, has since died, unfortunately, but it was a world-class tenor player, had been on the Woody Herman Band and just an amazing player. And was a legendary vocalist who put out an album in the 50s called Born Blue that kind of has cult status now. And she was a jingle producer and composer and arranger and did six nights a week piano singles and all this sort of stuff. 
And she's just an amazing font of wisdom and stories. And they both kind of just took me under their wing. Uh, they only lived a couple blocks away. And Bob started inviting me down to his Sunday after jazz brunch gig at Cafe Lou. And I started sitting in. And, and then he took me to a couple jam sessions. And then he put me on a few gigs. That's where I met Warren Vache. I'm sitting there thinking, this is unbelievable. Not only did I survive and not get killed the first day I walked into Manhattan, but I love this place, and I'm getting to play music, and I've met these amazing people. And for me, it was the most electric, inspiring, mind-opening experience of my life. Beautiful. So you've obviously, you know, kind of been a geographical um, globetrotter here. You're now in California. Talk to me a little bit about how you've ended up where you're at right now and uh, just kind of yeah. how that works in your timeline. Sure. So I was in New York for four years and thought I was going to spend the rest of my life there. I loved it that much and was enjoying it that much. 2008, the firm I worked for said, we want you on the West Coast. And I kept saying, I don't really want to go. I'm happy here. And then eventually he said, August 1, 2008, you'll need to be in California. And unfortunately, you know, this was when our economy was collapsing. And I thought, well, this is a really bad time to say no to your boss because I could find myself out of work and living in New York uh, at a time when people are going to be losing their jobs and it's not going to be easy to find work. Or I can go to California, start a new life experience and keep my job. And, you know, I'm fairly risk averse person. Uh, so I made the move. I had my choice of offices. We have uh, locations in uh, San Diego and San Francisco, Los Angeles um, and Sacramento. I thought, well, I've done the big city thing with New York, and I have a buddy who runs our office in Sacramento, so I'll go to Sacramento. But the truth is, I've been here 13 years, and I hated the first three because I was so busy resenting the fact that I had uh, had the transfer against my will. But once I stopped you know, resenting it and made friends and really started working on getting into the scene, I've really come to love it here. And I've met wonderful musicians. Man, I mean, Northern California, you've got all that. Bay Area influence, you know, Oakland uh, is home to so much of the, you know, the Tower of Power sound and all these great sort of soul R&B horn bands and um, incredible musicians up and down Northern California. And so there's all kinds of great players I've, I've had the opportunity to work with here. Now, there are differences and it's, 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 you know, listeners may find this interesting or not, but it may be about the passage of time or maybe about geographical differences. But when I was in Kansas City, like I said, it was strictly sidemen. You know, you make yourself known when somebody needs a drummer. They call their list of drummers, you know, and I was occasionally a first call for a few people. I was second or third call for others. But you get the call, you show up a half hour before the gig, you set up your acts and you play and you're done. And, you know, that's the way it goes. What, what I discovered when I came to Sacramento is there's very little of that sideman scene or the casual scene. It's very much entrenched bands, people rehearsing as steady groups and going out and trying to work on a regular basis as that unit. Uh, so I had to kind of make a mental shift and get more accustomed to that way of working as a musician. But it's been great, and I've had a lot of terrific music experiences out here. So if you look at your biography and you just read through it, you think, man, a lot. how is this guy that's been all over, played with all of these bands and people, how is he releasing his debut now? <laughs> well, clearly, I'm <laughs> slow. Clearly, I'm slow. Well, I mean, it is an interesting story, and uh, well, I don't. Others will determine if it's interesting or not, but it's interesting to me. I mean, the origin story goes back 40 years. So the the 
the album itself and the story behind it is all about this jam session I played in 1981. And for those who haven't heard the album yet, the, the, the short version is, you know, jam sessions are placed where a bunch of people are just trying to burn as fast and high and loud as possible to impress each other. And there's this little break, and the factory in charge turns around and says, what do you guys want to play next? And no one said anything. And so I said, well, how about a ballad? Because I've always loved ballads. And this guy looked at me like I was insane and just turned around and kicked off another burner. You know, it was like, you don't do ballads at a jam session. You know, what are you, nuts? And so literally for 40 years, I've had this in my mind, this idea of, like, the drummer loves ballads as almost a snark. You know, it's like, the drummer loves ballads. And I thought, someday would be fun to, to use that as a basis for an album. And I've just carried that around for years, literally decades. And then I started thinking, I think there's something about aging, you know, a few, a few years ago. It's just like, okay, I, my, my clock is ticking. I've got more years behind me than I have ahead, probably. And if I want to do this, I need to do it now. And I approached my buddy, Kushan, John Kushan. And I, I said, you know, if I were to do this, would you be my producer? And he said, yes. And that's the only reason it actually got done. Uh, because I needed an accountability partner. It'd be easy for this to just be an idea or a dream. But when you get somebody else on board and, and say, okay, yeah, we're going to do it, then you go like, well, I guess we should meet and talk about tunes and timing and personnel, you know, and all of a sudden it was a real thing. Now, even at that point, it took five years. You know, John and I had that first conversation at a diner in New York in 2016. We planned off and on throughout, that was right at the end of 2016. We planned off and on throughout 2017. Sessions started in 2018. 2019 was mostly a loss with the pandemic, um, 2019, 2020. Uh, and then we were able to kind of get back on track, finish the mixing and getting it out. So it's just one of those things that had percolated. And finally, because I got myself an accountability buddy, I was able to turn an idea into some action. Perfect. Final question. Everyone has a perception or an idea of who they think you are, your family, your friends, your fans. But ultimately, you're living your life. What's your perception of you? Who do you think you are? I think I'm a dilettante. Um, and I say that uh, because growing up, I always wanted to be a renaissance man. I have curiosity about a ton of things. I'm fascinated by a lot of different things. I love exploring and reading and learning about the different things. And I was enamored with the idea of, you know, those folks that throughout history have been referred to as sort of Renaissance men and women, the, the people who were polymaths, had uh, command of a variety of disciplines, integrated different ideas from one part of their world into another part of the world. And I was like, I, that's what I want to be because I have all these things. I love literature. I, I love magic and theater. I love music. I love writing. I love public speaking. I love figuring out, you know, complex ideas, all these sorts of things. And in the end, I think I didn't become a renaissance man because I don't think I'm quite masterful enough of any one area to, to bestow that moniker upon myself. So I'm a happy dilettante. I, I do a lot of things, and I try and combine those things. And so this album is really uh, integrating my love of writing. There's an original tune called At the Trocadero on there that I wrote the lyrics for and Wayne Hawkins wrote the music for of storytelling and public speaking, which comes across in the interludes. I was a graphic designer early in my career. I got to bring that to the packaging and, of course, the music first and foremost. But uh, I think I'm a dilettante. I, 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 uh, my problem is uh, I wanted to be everything. <laughs>
And I don't think that that happened, but I do get to uh, try a lot of things and it's fun to bring them all together. Beautiful. John, thank you for opening up. Thank you for the music. Good luck with everything, man. It's been a great joy to talk to you. Well, I sure appreciate it, Joe, and I'm delighted you took time to, to do it. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview where we give you a bit of insight into the finest cats in New York City, Sacramento, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to John for his time, music, and class. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com and for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.